Ando, straight from the suburbs podcast, episode one. Welcome, welcome to G Ando's podcast, Straight from the Suburbs, episode one. This is Arthur G Ando, and I'm here to bring you some real information, whether it's culture, literature, sports, or entertainment. But we're just here to take it straight from the suburbs. Uh, first, this episode is called, Are We Living a Lie? Are We Living a Lie, Episode 1. Now, I named this episode, Are We Living a Lie, because I think back to my growing up and how I grew up, um, starting out in the city of Richmond, and then we moved to Henrico County, which is a suburb on the outskirts of Richmond, Virginia, and how we grew up with our friends. So what I want to do, I want to start out just um, reading an essay that I had written last year when I was in a doctoral program at Concordia University to kind of give a background of where I'm from and how I, my worldview basically is called the 1970s Glenn's worldview. And this will just give you a background of how I came up, but then I'm going to, at the end, discuss where I feel that we might have been actually living a lie coming up in the post-civil rights era. So just roll with me right this, right quick. Here's the essay. It's pretty lengthy, so let's go. I was born in 1967, right before the death of Dr. Martin Luther King in a rural town called Farmville, Virginia, which was about an hour and 15 minutes from the capital city of Richmond. Upon my parents' graduation from college in South Carolina in 1961, they moved to Blackstone, Virginia. My dad taught history and coached football at the local high school, while my mom taught music at the middle school. They lived in Blackstone for eight years before relocating to my father's hometown of Richmond, Virginia. We lived in what is, was called Northside, across the street from a historically black college and university known as the HBCU, Virginia Union University. The community was close-knit and filled with working-class blacks ranging from laborers 
to college professors. As I can recall, I had a very pleasant experience while we lived here. There was a church around the corner, a local grocery store, and the school that I was aspiring to attend, G.W. Carver Elementary. At that age, I can remember looking forward to following my sisters to the school and then moving on to the neighborhood middle school. Little did I know that in the immediate post-civil rights era, the United States government was working on a plan to accelerate the process of integration with a concept called forced busing. In Virginia, the legislation that initiated this was the case of Bradley versus Richmond School Board, 1970. The Virginia Museum of History and Culture states, Federal District Judge Robert Murray ordered a limited citywide busing program in Richmond. Predictably, the result was an additional white flight to private schools and to the suburbs. Calling it the only remedy promising success, in 1972, Murridge sought to nullify white flight by extending the busing program to the suburban counties so that white children from the counties would be bused into the city and black children from the city would be sent to the counties. In 1972, at five years old, I was confused about having to travel 13 miles away from my home to attend elementary school when there was a school around the corner from us. I received no warning, no explanation from my parents at all. This was my first encounter with white people, and even though that time period is somewhat of a blur now, I can remember it being a rough adjustment for me. It was my first time in school, traveling across town every day, and I am now interacting with these unknown people. So now, as I viewed the recent Democratic debate where Senator Kamala Harris so eloquently depicted her experience being bust in California, it resonated with me. I didn't have any hecklers or anyone berating me, but I can remember being isolated at times. This might be because of my shyness or my race, I don't know. However, this one-year experiment was just preparing me for the next 12 years of my life. As I review my generation as the first to integrate, I believe that we were pioneers by the fact that we endured the after effects of the civil rights movement. My peers and I were the ones that had to bridge the gap between blacks and whites in the 70s based on integration methods such as busing. By the spring of 1973, my parents began to take my sisters and me on a ride to what seemed to be the country a place rife with red clay and farmland. By the end of the summer, this location had about five homes there and the Anderson's name was on one of them. We had moved to a suburb called Henrico County, which was located about five miles from my home in the city of Richmond. I was too young to have an opinion on it, but I knew that I loved living in the city. Our new home was a split-level four-bedroom home with a decent-sized yard. However, to me, it wasn't as big as our city home. What I realized as an adult 
was that a lot of the black professionals were presented an opportunity to move outside of the city to raise their families. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 ostensibly ended redlining, expanding home buying opportunities for African Americans who joined whites in an exodus from the city to the suburbs. Quote, a lot of the black neighborhoods, that's, that's when they began to collapse, said John Moser, citing the departure of black teachers, lawyers, professionals, and civic leaders who helped serve as their glue. The neighborhood that we moved to, Hungry Road Estates, was an all-black and once again very close-knit. However, when we went to Montrevet Elementary School, the black population was about 30% at the time. For all parties involved, from the black and white students and teachers alike, the transition was difficult. Teachers had to adjust to this new race of students while teaching and nurturing their own. Black and white kids had to learn to work together and coexist in a school environment. From this stage and throughout my high school career, I learned to judge a person as an individual and not generalize a group. I had to learn to navigate so that I would not get in trouble by retaliating back to a white kid named Anthony Anus who called me a word I never heard, nigger, while trying to trip me over a chair. I just thought that we were playing together, jumping over the chairs in the class. Meanwhile, Anthony was devising a plan to physically hurt me simply because of the color of my skin. This baffled me that someone hated me because of the color of my skin because my parents never taught me to hate. This was just an isolated incident because on the other hand, I formed a bond with a classmate named David Lovin and he always came to my aid. I then began to learn more about white people as my friends and I participated in Little League football for the Laurel Panthers, which was an organization not far from my house. The football organization slowly accepted blacks with open arms and began to reign as champions throughout the area. However, there were always these stories about the fact that the local white men would have Ku Klux Klan bonfires in the football field at night. I can attest to that. I can only say that these coaches that we had and the kids that I played with gave me the utmost respect and some are friends to this, to this day. My favorite coach was a rotund bearded man named Leonard Norris. This man truly cared about me and my family and when I would see him as an adult, he would give me a big hug and ask how much he loved me and say how much he loved me. His impact on his boys on the football team was evident at his funeral when we all flocked to pay homage to him. As I matriculated to Midland High School, I began to create lifelong friendships, whether it was Tanya Lungsford, now Austin, who was the head cheerleader, or Darren Baldwin, my locker mate in football. To this day, we support each other's endeavors. With the advent of social media outlets such as Facebook, we have begun to have annual reunions to stay up to date with our classmates. 
Upon graduating from Hermitage High School, I decided to attend Virginia State University in Ettrick, Virginia. The school is nestled right above the Appomattox River between the Colonial Heights, which is a predominantly white town, and Petersburg, which is a predominantly black city. It's funny because we drove through Colonial Heights to get to Ettrick. We would see Confederate flags and yards and get berated by white guys yelling obscenities at us. Conversely, the local blacks in Petersburg didn't like us because they thought that we were uppity college boys. I believe that I came into my own in college because I came in contact with people from all over the country and had to learn how to deal with them all. Within the college culture, I got heavily into hip hop music, which had such a rich and positive outlook at the time. The artists and their lyrics spoke to the current events of the late 1980s and served as an educational tool as well. During that time, I began to read a lot and learn to love myself. Growing up in a predominantly white environment, then attending an all-black college made for a perfect combination that prepared for my career endeavors. I learned how to respect people from other cultures during my 21-year career in the United States Army Reserves and National Guard. Additionally, I have worked side-by-side -side with great people as a government contractor, insurance industry, and in ed education. I feel that I was placed in this unique position to be one of the kids experiencing busing and integration, integration yet succeeding in life with the assistance of some great individuals. My worldview was expanded by parents taking a leap of faith and moving to the unfamiliar territory, overcoming obstacles, and trying to treat everybody right. I know that I can have positive relationships with people from all walks of life and cultures based on my well-rounded life. My upbringing and experiences have prepared me for a life of tolerance and diversity. Mezzero stated, culture can encourage or discourage transformative thought. Modernization creates an imperative need for the transformations in learning that become possible as a result of de de developmental changes in adults' ability to become more critically reflective of presuppositions. Guys, that's the end of that essay, which I wrote approximately eight months ago, around January of 2020. At the time when I wrote this essay, I was again in a doctoral program at Concordia University. And I did not know that not, not only two, no more than two months later after this essay, that technically my world would be flipped upside down and all hell would break loose. In March, we experienced the beginning of COVID-19, and at this point, over 204,000 people have died because of this deadly virus. Between March and 
currently September. We've had people, social unrest, due to simply being ordered to stay out of harm's way or wear a mask. We've had the beginning point of the third reconstruction with the death of George Floyd. From that, we've had several other untimely and tragic deaths. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the shooting of Mr. Blake. These situations, these tragic events, and the subsequent actions afterwards, such as protests, march, civil unrest, continued police brutality, has made me to question, did I actually really, or am I living a lie? So that brings me to the the title of this particular episode one, Did I Live a Lie? Growing up where I grew up, in an environment where you grew up with kids that you think you knew, think you, you know, might know growing up from another race. And years later, when you have a situation that could possibly and and will make you decide what side you're on, whether you're on the really the side of right or wrong, but people make decisions to stand on the side of their race, regardless of whether that's right or wrong. And I say that to say with this advent and usage of social media, people have reared their true self, their ugly head, but it's their true self, self, as a great poet, Maya Angelou said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Well, it was hard to believe that former friends, former classmates from middle school, high school, they're of a different race than me, would make certain comments as relate to right or wrong, right or wrong that would basically say that because the person was black, because I'm black, we should go back to Africa. We should shut up. We should not say anything. We should just be happy to be here in America and be free. And many more other things. That makes us question, hey, was this just a facade that we were living growing up? in Hiraiko County or has these, the current political climate made you just take sides? And it goes to a quote that Lyndon Bain Johnson's made in reference to 
how if the lowest white man think he's better than the highest black man, you can you can pick his pocket. And you can do it without without him even knowing it. Heck, he'll give it to you. To paraphrase. He'll give you the lint out of his pocket. Just to know say that as a white man, regardless of if I'm a coal miner in West Virginia making minimum wage, that I am just as good or better than the first black president of the United States. And a lot of this mindset has filtered in and have come out of the computers of people that I've known for years. So what does this, this do? What does this do? This make you turn towards yourself and become more of a tribe. And it's making this whole country based on the non-leadership of our current president, 45, coupled with police brutality and the lack of sensitivity towards the downtrodden is made for these actions to come about. But guess what? I'm, I'm going to keep pushing on. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep fighting for right. And my last point I wanted to make is a, is a personal, another personal quick story. As an athletic director, my team traveled to play a game. This was in March. And the actions that I just spoke about were exhibited by the fans of that, that particular team that we played. The taunting, the, the jeers, the hard looks. And we were going just to play a, a basketball game in peace. And it got so bad that we had to file a complaint. I say all of that in closing to say that that was the impetus that for what we're experiencing today. And as I think back to that day in March, beginning of March, it just makes me think that, you know, the, the, the children of today are pretty much flipping back and reverting and acting like the kids of 1930s, 40s, and 50s. So, in closing, my question is, did I live a lie? And what will I, what am I going to do to ensure that I leave this world in a better place than where I found it, regardless of how people may act? What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? And with that being said, I bid you farewell, episode one. It's concluded, and we'll see you next week. Peace.